0: a few random introductory observations. Number one, if you've ever heard of uh, uh, Hell and Brimstone's sermons, this is a perfect text to base it on. Come back to that a little bit. Um, uh, uh, What are my other introductory observations? Oh, um, uh, when we go to the Boundary Waters or when you've camped in Wisconsin State Parks, one of the mantras is what? Uh, Leave no trace behind, which essentially means uh, leave it at least as good as you found it, if not better. And today's gospel lesson makes a lot more sense when you apply Mark chapter 10, verse 17 to it. Yeah, of course. And you all immediately are able to access Mark chapter 10, verse 17 in your mental directory of the scripture, right? Okay. Okay. Okay, I knew it was in Mark chapter 10, and I'm a professional, but I still had to look it up to see uh, what verse 17 was. So, uh, the relevance of that is as follows. Uh, The other things will kind of come to us as we go along. Uh, But in Mark chapter 10, verse 17, uh, a rich young man comes to Jesus and says, What must I do? He says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus apparently detects something in the attitude of the guy that he's a little suspicious of. And Jesus kind of bristles and fires back at him. The human Jesus, of course, says this. Um, uh, why, why do you call me good? God alone is good. In other words, the long-standing Jewish tradition is that uh, goodness is God's alone. We can aspire to it, but none of us can fully achieve it. Now that's really important for today's gospel lesson, because when I introduced it, I said, once we get to verse 21 in chapter 5, Jesus just launches into this whole series of really demanding things. And it ends, and we've talked about this too over the last couple of weeks, uh, so maybe it'll trigger a memory in your mind, that all of it comes to the end in verse 48 of chapter 5, which is kind of this mic drop moment, where Jesus ends all this challenging, demanding stuff by saying, you must be perfect As your Father in heaven is perfect. Does God, does Jesus really expect you to be perfect? Of course not. That's what Mark 10, 17 is about. Uh, Jesus knows we can't even be good at some level. God alone is good. God alone is perfect. None of us can ever match that. So then why does he end it by saying you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect? Because he's a Jewish rabbi. And he uses hyperbole and exaggeration all the time. And so now when you go back to the portion that I actually read, is it really possible to get through life without ever getting angry? Is it possible to get through life to like somehow turn off all of your biology so once you're in a long-term relationship you never notice anybody else? Is it really possible for you every time you're in a disagreement with another human being to immediately deal with it directly until you get to a good resolution? Has anybody here ever done all of that all of the time? No. Nobody can do that all the time. So now when you listen to the Sermon on the Mount, you realize Jesus is exaggerating to try and get our attention. But the, the real challenge for us as the followers is, we know that we can't do that 100% of the time. So what's the percent he wants us to live up to? Clearly not zero but does he want us to kind of be on target 50% of the time, 75%, 90%? What's the answer to that? And then how do you actually do that over the course of a lifetime? Okay, going to come back to that. First, we've got to go back to the first lesson that Pete read before. Uh, how many of you knew that Sirach is in the Bible? <clears throat> okay. When somebody says, I read it in the Bible, your first question to them should be, What? Which Bible? You realize there's more than one Bible. There's the Jewish Bible, what we would call the Old Testament, they would refer to it as the Hebrew Scriptures, um, which is 39 books. And then there's the Catholic Bible which has uh, 83 books in it. And then there's the Protestant Bible that we use in the Lutheran tradition that has 66 books in it. So now the Jewish Hebrew Bible makes sense. You know, that's the Old Testament, those 39 books. The difference then is in how uh, Christians keep traffic of it. In the Catholic tradition, uh, they say that there are um, uh, 56 books in the Wait, I have that right? Uh, well, anyhow, they say there are X number of books in the, in the New Testament based on the canon that the Christian church created in uh, the 300 to 400 A.D. period. <sighs> no, I'm screwing that up. S- start over. John's getting too many numbers going in his head. The, all the Christians agree there are 27 books in the New Testament. The, the question is how many books are in the Old Testament as far as Christians are concerned. Catholics would say 56 39 that the Jewish people selected, plus 17 that the early Christian church said was in it. The Protestant reformers come along, and they're really focused on getting the Bible right, and they say, no, the Old Testament should be comprised only of books that the Jewish people who wrote it say are in it. So the Protestants said there are only 39 in the Old Testament. I so wanted that to be kind of interesting and clearly expressed. Maybe I should have practiced. Practice. 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 Practice, for tomorrow. Practice for tomorrow. That's what Saturday night is, people. I had practiced this. I still didn't get it right. So the, the, there are these 17 books that the Protestants don't have in the Bible and the Catholics do. If I I could have just said that. Those are called the apocrypha, which is different than apocalyptic. That's explained in your bulletin, so you can read that there. Um, Anyhow, Sirach is one of those books. Now, the Catholics, the Lutherans, the Methodists, the Episcopalians, we're all on the Revised Common Lectionary, which is the three-year cycle of readings, and we all read them, and so especially at this time of the year, we're all synced up. We're all reading the same readings at the same time. Uh, But because we don't have the same Bible, there are multiple options within the lectionary when it comes to the Old Testament. So this week, our Old Testament lesson would have been from Deuteronomy chapter 30, and you notice that's in the opening quote section of the bulletin. But uh, Sirach chapter 15 is from that apocryphal section, and it basically says the same thing, and actually I think it says it a little more clearly, and so I decided we're just going to put Sirach in there this week, and Pete got to read it before. The essence of whether we read Deuteronomy 30 or Sirach 15 is that God gave, the, gave the, the people of Israel laws to abide by. And when we think laws, I think most of the time we think human laws, and we all are always kind of suspicious of laws, right? And we always want to kind of push the boundaries on laws. Laws are kind of, uh, if not a bad thing, something kind of imposed on us. One of the cool things about Judaism is they, don't, they truly do not think of God's laws that way. God's laws are different. God's laws are this an amazing gift where if you actually follow them, that's what leads to fullness of life. And and it's really the only path, and and it's a really good path to be on. So at the end of the giving of all of those laws by the tradition, Moses kind of paused and said to the people, there you have it. Uh, You can choose. You get to choose. God doesn't dictate. God doesn't force you to follow this stuff. But you can choose life or death. And then Sirach kind of expands on that and says, you know, you can can choose hot, burning fire in your hand or you can choose cool, calming waters. And and the last thing in Sirach I think is kind of the most kind of blunt and obvious, but it's really true. God never ordered anybody to do wrong and God never uh, uh, explains away or excuses the wrong either. We truly get to choose. Everybody here wants to choose the right. And I, I, I almost think we, as people of faith, kind of get pumped up for that. Uh, under the right circumstances, we are really motivated to do the right thing, even if it costs us something, even if it's difficult, even if it flies in the face of, of you know, maybe what the crowd is pushing us to do. We are pretty good at that one. Right. And, and the hard part about the life of faith is, is you can't just choose it once. You got to choose it like every hour. You got to choose it every day. And if you've chosen it uh, 14 times every day for two weeks in a row, and then, then you weaken a little bit, or you don't pay attention, or you just get sick of it, and then you choose wrong the one time, that one time, can do so much damage. The, the hard part about choosing life is that you have to keep choosing. it. And as per the children's message, you have to learn how to choose. And it, it doesn't come automatically. And some of us are better at it than others. And, and some of us resist learning it more than others. It's just tough. It's just tough. So how do, how do you actually do it? So now we're back to the gospel lesson, and and, and maybe I want to kind of give you two little mental images, and and maybe one of them will work for you. So the the first is, uh, think of yourself as an individual investor in the common cause bank of faith. Uh, How many of you remember, with some detail, it's a wonderful life, a Christmas movie, Jimmy Stewart, Donna Reed, all that stuff. Okay, Uh, if you remember the movie, remember the scene where there's the run on the bank. And all these people come in and they want to take their money out. And Jimmy Stewart's character has to do what? This little old lady standing there and says she wants her money. And he says to her what? It's like not here. "Ah!" Panic. And then he has to explain in further detail, well, some of it's here. But some of it's in your neighbor's house and their mortgage. You know, you have to trust that it's all here, even though it's not all here. Maybe you've never thought of it this way, but banks are kind of a capitalist socialism. You can't have a bank by yourself. You need multiple depositors, and you need multiple lendees. That's kind of how the system works. In today's second lesson, Paul's talking to these Corinthians who are very individualistic. And they're very proud of who baptized them because that's what makes them special. That one person. And Paul says, it doesn't matter. One person baptized you. One person taught you. And it's all about Jesus anyway. And you are in common cause with each other to be the people of God. There is no way to keep choosing the right by yourself. You'll get too tired, too jaded, you'll make mistakes, you'll forget about it. And so you need somebody to correct you. I need somebody to thank me if I get it right. You need somebody to praise you because you got it right ten times in a row. We all need somebody who can lift us up when we inevitably fall down. We are in common cause together. God keeps the individual account at some level. We all still have to choose. But we do it better for a common purpose when we do it together. We all have our accounts. It's in the one bank. I, I, just, I just think that's important this week in a lot of ways in life. Because there, there is a lot of pressure on us to, like, do it ourselves. And I'm not just talking about faith stuff whatever it is you got to do it yourself I- including work through relationship issues that are never about just one person in relationships it's always about the whole and so when you when you think of what Jesus says in the sermon on the mount it's really beautiful and it's really life-giving i think to say y- you know if you want to Offer your gift at the altar, but you're you're broken with somebody. God doesn't need the the gift at the altar. (laughs) You know, go to to your neighbor and work it out with them. That's that's the important thing. Deal deal with that first. I mean, that's that's so empowering. To know that you, you can do it and that you should do it, and that's the most important thing that you should do. So that's one Potential way of, of having an image of, of what to do for this week. Now, of course, I'm forgetting what the other image is. Marilyn, is my script back there? Seriously, I really did practice this. And it's like, well, John, what are you doing? Be patient. I'm getting there. Uh, boundary waters rule. Um, leave no trace. Don't make it worse. So it's kind of weird, but like in the last four months, not connected to anybody in this congregation, but in the last four months, I've twice been with people uh, where they were either at the funeral of their parent or were talking about their parent, and in both of those cases, their parent had cut them out of the will. And, uh, you know, I know them, and there were some issues there. But I didn't think there were that many issues there. And it reminded me a little bit almost of having been with people after somebody has committed suicide. In other words, in talking to these two people, there there was such unresolved everything. Why, Why did they do that? And, and such hurt and such rage and such resentment. And, and I just am pretty sure that that's going to be with them for the rest of their life. And I don't know all the details and, and can't stand in judgment of what decisions those parents made. Um, but Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount talks a lot about how... Um, Retribution is just a a downward vortex spiral. To return evil for evil, it's just just a killer. Somehow we have to return good for evil when we can, or at least don't make it worse. Don't give somebody a lifetime of anger and resentment (laughs) and unresolved stuff. So for the week to come, when you're you're trying to do it by yourself, maybe take a step back and and ask yourself, why am I trying to do it by myself? Ask for some help. Talk to somebody else about it. And there are maybe only a a few times in life where you're in the situation where, where you could actually make it better, but you could also make it worse. And to be true to our faith tradition, just... Pray for the faith and strength to not make it worse. When the Ten Commandments are given, one of the first things that's said in in that flow of these gifts that give us life is that when we make mistakes, that, that goes out to the third or fourth generation. But when we do good, that goes out to the thousandth generation. May the mistakes of your life... Be countable on a single hand, three or four. May the goodness of your life, let that be numbered by the stars in the heavens, right? Thousands upon thousands. May it be so for all of us. Done.